0: Hello, everyone. It's March 23rd, 2021. So Senator Bill Nelson is the new NASA administrator and an old NASA veteran. I hope he does well. Also, Space Force, what are they doing about debris mitigation? We just had another satellite breakup in orbit. So I guess let's look both ways first and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 302 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So
1: we, yeah, we're, we're officially one half vaccinated on the team here. Uh, Dennis is fully vaccinated. I've got one (laughs) shot and uh, David's still waiting.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I can look into it and get it. My dad, I think, got his second shot. I took him for his... No, I took him for both shots. Um, You know, one time was in a car. You just drive up. The other time he went... Mm. In, I'm, try- I'm trying to remember. I can't even remember it already. This was like hmm. maybe like a week ago. You know, I think that the elderly are getting their vaccines. And so, I mean, that's obviously the first step or like one of the initial ones. Well,
1: I mean, Pencil- I can't speak for anywhere else because I haven't looked into it for a while, but Pennsylvania is still on the first phase. Um, but remember, Biden said that he wants uh, states vaccinating everybody, I think, was it May 1st?
2: May sounds right.
1: Yeah. So, and, and you know, when I first heard that, I was like, that's idiotic. We have, um, priorities for a reason, but the amount of vaccines that are rolling off the, uh, the factory floors, it's really incredible. So hopefully, hopefully that's going to be good. But so, uh, so I didn't get to do drive through. That's pretty cool. I, I went to a middle school and it was striking. Uh, this was the first time I've been in a place with a lot of people, uh, that I didn't feel panicked. Like you know, just like going to the grocery store, like I'm not panicked, but it's just like, it's stress. Like it's like pressure in the back of your head. And, um, it, it was so cool to see all these people. And because, you know, we're all there for a particular reason, you know, we're being watched by, uh, healthcare professionals and like, you know, there's these expectations. Everybody was being really, really good about what masking and washing their hands or sanitizing their hands and keeping six feet apart. Uh, and it, it felt so good. Like it, it had the same, Emotional impact on me that like um voting does um where like everybody's coming yeah. together to do this one thing, and we're there for one task, and we're all doing it because it's good for everybody it I don't know it I was very, very, very happy. <laughs>
0: Bill Nelson is to be nominated as the next NASA head, or the head administrator, I believe, uh, is the right title. There might be more to that, because they're all big, but...
2: Yeah, the administrator.
0: Okay, it's just it's just administrator and not like something administrator of something of something. I don't know. If it seems like <laughs> no, and, and no, the, hi, way the too higher short. up the
1: chain you are, the fewer titles you have. Well,
0: That's true, but it, <laughs> it seems that they find a way.
2: <laughs> and I think it's something about the type of organization it is within the government mm-hmm. that makes you an administrator versus you know a secretary or a you know some mm-hmm. other kind of top-level title.
0: So the current acting administrator here you have is Steve Jersik. So I I guess you put that in, Dennis. So this is after Bridenstine left, right? So he's basically yeah. filling in during the interim?
2: Yep. And i see him at a couple of uh, uh, conferences, you know, because everything's virtual now, and so it's very easy to <laughs> to show up and just, you know, give your opening remarks or whatever. And uh, it, my, my impression is that he's basically, you know, he's an experienced kind of old head who's just been in here for a long time, and he's got, like, a good rapport with a lot of people, and so he was just a very uh good it was a good choice for kind of uh steer uh keeping the ship sailing you know while they were going to find the more permanent um uh, next uh, administrator.
0: But yeah, so now they've settled on Bill Nelson. So I guess we all know something about him, right? Because he's pretty famous as far as senators go, just because right. of how active he is in space flight. And I remember hearing about him. Plus, I, you know, I lived in Florida for many years. And so you just hear his name mm. m- mentioned here and there. And, and I forget because he's he's been around for a long time. And so I remember watching, what was it? I can't remember which movie it was, but, you know, there was an actor portraying him and it was like Apollo 13 or something. I, I don't remember which, yeah. but I mean, he's been around for a long time time and he's been active uh, in space for a very long time so I feel like he knows what he's talking about like it, it seems to me that he would be a good choice but I don't know it seems that there's also conflicting opinions on that so I wonder if you feel any differently because I was kind of excited when I heard that and maybe it's just because I associate him with the Apollo time period when they were like actually getting stuff done but I don't know if that necessarily translates to how you know he would behave now or what an administrator would do just given how things work today
2: i'm optimistic but i guess at the end of the day you gotta really just wait and see you know
0: <laughs> yeah
2: um, but yeah maybe maybe he'll um because right if the the big thing about brydenstein and, and nelson actually opposed brydenstein a lot um was that he was a you know he's a politician right he's a former uh, uh member of congress and so um that turned out to actually be great you know what i mean and so maybe the fact that, you know, Nelson, who's obviously a political creature, being a senator for like two decades, but he did fly to space on a shuttle mission. So maybe yep. he'll kind of be like the kind of bridging the two a little bit. You know, he's definitely a political creature, but he at least knows what it's like to uh, fly on a shuttle mission back in the 80s, admittedly.
1: <laughs> so so first, before we, we go any farther, um, do, do you guys think that he's an astronaut? Because I heard... Uh, the NPR politics podcast this week, they were going on about how he's not an astronaut because
2: spaceflight participant,
1: right? <laughs> well, yeah, he was, he was, uh, but I mean, he, he flew as a payload specialist on Columbia back before they stopped, um, trying to get so many civilians. Uh, and to, oh well, actually, I mean civilians as opposed to trained astronauts, but he's not a civilian. He served in the military, so kind of an odd word choice uh-huh. there, yeah, um but like do you guys how do you guys feel about the word astronaut? like is this something that we need to be limiting about because I don't think we do, and uh yeah,
0: I don't I mean, think so either. I mean, I think he's an astronaut because I thought that, in fact, this is the first I've heard of this. I thought that, you know, the definition was anyone who has gone to space, then boom, you're an astronaut. Yeah, that's kind of how I think
1: about it. But like, I understand that there's a good definition between or a a good distinction between like a working astronaut and a space tourist. And I don't know if I would want to call a space tourist an astronaut, but like he wasn't a tourist.
2: Yeah, he he did his work. The way I see yeah.
0: it but I don't know there probably needs to be some kind of changing of like eventually that term is gonna have to be revised uh, or how we talk about people who go into space because on the one hand you know it's like like if it becomes common enough then you don't have a term like we don't really know what yeah. we call people who fly on planes they're not Ooh. you know like what do you what do you call <laughs> right. that you know except for like passenger I guess you know but
1: yeah well you're a passenger no, I, while I, you're on just, the plane and not when you're off yeah
2: and and I, I think you can preserve you know the professionalism of you know, astronaut by saying, you know, okay, you can be a NASA astronaut if you're if you're, you know, a career person with NASA. Yeah. You can be a commercial astronaut if you're somebody who's on a you know a private company, but your goal is to basically be somebody who knows how to, you know, yeah. fly the ship, so to speak and kind of I mean of, the you same know, way that not that, so much
1: Yeah. Pilot is a profession. So
2: Right. And then and then other people are still uh they're still astronauts even if they aren't one of those two kind of categories, you know?
1: Okay. So we talked a little bit about um, the fact that he's a, a political, a politician. Um, and, uh, my dad, Tim, this week tweeted at us and asked what our opinion was. And I didn't reply because I, I did not, I hadn't formed an opinion yet. Um, so I'd love to hear if you guys have, uh, anything more to say about him, just like as, as a candidate. And, and before I, I let you guys loose, I wanted to clarify, um, Dennis, you said that he opposed Bridenstine's appointment. Um, did you know that he did that because Bridenstine had expressed climate change denier opinions in the past? So that's why you're, that's why you were saying that, that, that seems to bode well, right? It's crazy because Bridenstine was. Like universally loved, like when, when he actually got into the job and, and was doing work, I don't think anybody didn't like the job he was doing. Um, so I think it's an interesting thing to say that opposing him or opposing his appointment is potentially a good thing.
2: Right. So with Bridenstine, it was a little more nuanced. He, he, he was more like trying to downplay climate, uh, human driven climate change. I, I feel like uh, a lot of times on Twitter, they call this, uh, uh lukewarmism. <laughs> right. They're a lukewarmer rather than a straight up denier. Um, but, it, but it, 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 Brian Stein later clarified that was in the context of him basically saying that we needed to focus more on, uh, I think it was specifically about like some kind of relief or something for people in Texas. And so he was in the context of advocating for money for Texas, uh, downplaying the broader kind of climate change uh, issue. And so, but still a good thing though about, Bill, off the bat, although actually could be a bad thing, given how polarized Congress is, is that we've mentioned a few times how common wisdom is that Biden's administration is going to move NASA in a little bit more of a uh, Earth observation. You know, let's get even more evidence and data related to climate change and how we can then, you know, mitigate and adapt in the best way that we can. Uh and so, uh, you know, while still maintaining our kind of human uh, spaceflight and our commercial programs, but this is somebody who, you know, uh, coming from Florida, right, which is going to be, you know, has already been feeling a lot of the worst effects of uh, human driven climate change. And, um, you know, he's somebody who takes it seriously off the bat. You know what I mean? And I say that that's a good thing and that that's what you would want your uh, your administrator to be. But it also, given how polarized things are, I hope that doesn't end up you know, making his nomination a big, uh, you know, bipartisan battle, which admittedly Bridenstine's was, I think his went straight down party lines to vote. um, But it might be the same with Bill Nelson. And so, yeah, we'll see. And I think uh, the fact that he's also I mean, you know, he he is such a political creature, like you were saying, David, Right? he's been around Forever, and so that just means that he's someone that I imagine a lot of you know political uh, pundits and talking heads have very strong opinions about.
0: You know, to be honest, I don't know much about him as a politician, but I just know that like every time I hear his name mentioned, or I you know would hear mentioned, it would always be something to do with spaceflight. So I mean, he was a senator, but he was always very much involved, really. I mean, so I guess Mm -hmm. that's the thing is that he's always been involved in just like exactly what goes on you know at NASA, and of course that's something that you're going to see with any senator who represents a state that has you know a large NASA presence there um so maybe a lot of it was just pushing for i guess we often joke about jobs you know like it's more of a jobs program thing um so maybe that's part of it but i think that he really did like i feel that he really does care but i don't
2: mm-hmm.
0: know but i i just get that sense like he always seemed very passionate because obviously you know he actually flew on a shuttle mission so it's not something that he takes lightly and it's not something that he just sees as you know being there for the sake of creating government jobs, it seems like he really wants, you know, progress to be made. And that's what I like about him. He seems more like one of us than he does, you know, a politician. <laughs> but, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see, you know, exactly what he does.
2: Well, he's, he's he's legit. He's got the, you know, like like you say, like, like what does that mean, him being involved or anything? He, he straight up was one of the co-sponsors of the 2010 uh, NASA authorization that essentially – Kept funding Orion and SLS when it had an opportunity, and so that maybe you know, depending on how you feel, maybe that's um, a mark against him. But then definitely, though, a, a, a credit in his um, in his ledgers that he uh, uh, that same authorization also created Commercial Crew, mm-hmm. and so since that's mm-hmm. just been such a resounding mm-hmm. you know success, I mean, Bradenstein's you know overseen Commercial Crew kind of like you know start like really like you know kick it up and start, which is. Awesome. And that's certainly should be a feather in his cap. But, you know, Nelson also, you know, was back when he was just a legislator, basically, uh, is responsible for or partially responsible for getting commercial crew off the ground in the first place. So that way, Brian Stein could do the good job of, you know, seeing it to fruition. I mean, I, I think I think he's gonna be good. And, and again, I think hopefully the whole being a political creature, uh, the, the the talking heads seem to be saying that, you know, having a good working relationship with the administration is important, which he does have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that right. we've got an administration that at the topmost level isn't as interested in spaceflight as Pence was, for example, mm-hmm, uh, right. means that that's going to be more important than ever because uh, yeah. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden aren't exactly going to be probably, you know, knocking on NASA administrators doors, just kind of trying, to hey, I want to, let's do this, let's <laughs> do that, <laughs> you know, probably not going to happen that
1: way. And you know that when he, when he flew on the shuttle, one of his crewmates was Charles Bolden. Um, so like he, he is like actually familiar, like on a personal level with two previous administrators and that's, that's pretty cool.
2: (laughs) I gotta make a joke though. Cause that, that shuttle flight just came to me. It's I think it's going to turn out to be like a predator, the movie. Where he had all these, uh, you know, future politicians uh, and governors that were all actors at the same time there, and so the shuttle flight is going to basically produce a whole bunch of uh, uh, administrators, the same way that we had, you know, Jesse Ventura and Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: I never thought about that movie as of being. <laughs> <Predator>. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> how
1: how long do you think it's going to be before we get back to uh, a PhD heading NASA instead of uh, instead of a military service member?
0: Okay, well, who was. The last one.
1: Um, that would be Griffin. And with that said, I don't know if either uh, Bolden or Bridenstine had PhDs, but I, I don't believe so.
2: So I guess then it's really when, when's the next time we're going to have a straight up wonk?
1: Right. Okay. So Bolden had a master's, uh, Master of Science in System Management. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That'll work. And then Bridenstine... B.S. in economic psychology and business and then an MBA from Cornell. Okay. Let me, let me just read this section from Wikipedia. Griffin holds seven academic degrees. He earned a B.A. in physics from Johns Hopkins. An MSE in aerospace science from Catholic University of America, a PhD in aerospace engineering from University of Maryland, an MS in electrical engineering from University of Southern California, an MS in applied physics from Johns Hopkins, an MBA from Loyola, an MS in civil engineering from George Washington University. I don't know. Oh, before he was appointed, he was working towards an MS in computer science at Johns Hopkins.
2: That just seems excessive. It's like a story musgrave levels of credentials
1: <laughs> right so Dennis, you had a, a possible alternative uh here in the show notes. Did you want to talk about
2: that? Well, actually, uh, not so much alternative but a, a parallel appointment which would which honestly i'm I'd be a bit more excited about there's rumblings it's not nearly as official as Bill Nelson where uh, the White House has already released a statement saying they intend to nominate uh, him for the position of next administrator, but uh Pam Melroy might be tapped for deputy. Uh, administrator which would be cool and so she's you know she's a badass uh shuttle she flew twice as a pilot and then as a commander um on three different missions and so she's you know i, I she's she's a straight up astronaut <laughs> um although she's been doing a lot of stuff since then
1: a second woman to command a space yes. shuttle yeah uh,
2: you know since uh since she retired from NASA she's been working at Lockheed uh, she was uh in the uh, FAA's office, office of commercial space transportation, i.e., FAA, looking at anything you know that is you know a rocket <laughs> or you know yeah. air, space related, and uh, you know uh, DARPA. So she, it's not as though she's you know she has this uh, purely uh, astronaut profile, but um, I think she's also a she also has a military background, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, I think she's a she was a captain.
2: Yeah, Air Force. So that's that. That'd be pretty cool too. That'd be a great little uh, wombo combo, oh, Colonel uh, Bill Nelson and Pam Elroy. Oh, Colonel! Yeah, she's a Colonel.
1: So there, there. I, I hope that I answered my dad's question.
0: <laughs> I hope you answered it for me because <laughs> there you go, Tim. I, yeah, yeah. So that was a somewhat rare foray into politics, huh? We don't usually talk about that. So, so I guess now we can move on to more uh, space science the engineering things. Yeah. So let's talk about Debris Mayhem as I believe Ben you titled it. No, this is Dennis. <laughs> oh, Dennis. That was, okay. That was, that
2: was
1: my Yo. cheeky title. I threw it at the last moment. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be the episode title right there.
0: So let's talk about the Space Force for a second. So I guess they're looking into debris mitigation, which is good. I feel like that's something that obviously some organization needs to be seriously looking at. I think just as a coincidence, this article which we got from Space News, which I imagine is something that was, which was reporting on a, a recent announcement by Space Force regarding debris mitigation, that that just kind of coincided with an actual debris event in orbit, which happened, I think, just like a, like on the same day or a couple of days later. Right.
2: It's timely.
0: <laughs> kind of a coincidence, or, yeah.
2: The event was, I think the event happened like maybe like, like a week ago, but like it was only just like announced, I guess, that it happened.
0: Yeah, because they had to confirm it, yeah.
2: Right, right. But yeah, no. Talk about timely.
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, now would be as good a time as as any to worry about this. So I guess there's not a lot of details here, but other than Space Force want to work with the private sector and debris mitigation, right? So they kind of want to commercialize it. They want to use commercial services. They want to buy that service um, because then that way they can focus on national security. At least I think that that is a quote that I read. And so uh, there's a quote from a general, David Thompson. He said, I'll pay by the ton if they can remove debris, which right there, that kind of made me think, okay, so maybe that's, that is how you determine the cost. Is it you say per ton? Because I've never thought about how would you do that? Like you, Oh. Pay some service. And I mean, I assume that he was, he was maybe being a little tongue in cheek, but actually right, that might right. be, a, you know, a pretty good idea is that you can <laughs> you pay by pay the time. <laughs> yeah. You can say, you know, for, you know, for this amount of debris that you remove, we'll pay, you know, like this amount of money. Although I would imagine maybe there are certain orbits that might be, you know, worth more than others. Um, just to clear them if they have you know, special assets. I think
1: there. the the key here is that, you know, we launch payloads by the kilogram and so saying I'll pay by the ton is kind of indicating the the scale that we're thinking of here so so not just saying yeah we'll we'll pay by mass but like we we want to get this Taken care of will mm-hmm. pay by the time.
2: I really like the line because it, it it's not like it's not a lukewarm endorsement of, you know, <laughs> getting the private yeah. sector involved. You know what I mean? This is <laughs> yeah. this is very much uh it's very, very enthusiastic. Direct, <laughs> very clear. Yeah.
0: The military tend to be well funded. So if anyone can pay for this service, it is them. So
2: and I think Space Force, right, because it was it was a reorganization, right? And so in some ways it wasn't that big a deal. And so I think uh it got kind of misrepresented a bit in the news what you know the creation of Space Force was, but it did uh, its funding did, uh, if I remember correctly, absolutely skyrocket though uh, under the previous uh, administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's uh, that that means yeah, as far as them having money, right? The, like you say, the military has money <laughs> to go mm-hmm. around, and Space Force definitely got a big top off from before when they were, you know, whatever the I guess the Space Wing. Space Command?
0: So I guess it was during the press conference that General Thompson gave, somebody had mentioned a company called Astroscale, which I believe is a Japanese company, and they had asked if he had considered them for debris removal, and he said he will have to Google them because he's never heard of them. So I guess he's not too familiar with all the services that are out there. There are quite a few. And Astroscale will be launching soon enough on a Soyuz, and they'll be launching a demonstrator, or they will be doing a demonstration of... uh, this technology. So they'll be launching two satellites. There's the one that will capture, and then there's the one that will represent the debris and will be captured.
2: But yeah, no. So, so ELSA-D, which I cannot figure out what that stands for. End of life services by Astroscale. Hey, thank you. End of life Mm -hmm. services by Astroscale. And then the D I think is uh, for demo or demonstration. But yeah, so exactly like you're talking about. So, so the servicer satellite versus the one that's acting as the, you know, piece of debris to get removed The client. Uh, There's a about a factor of 10 difference in mass. So the servicer is 175 kilograms while the client is only 17 kilograms. And essentially it's got these, you know, it's a magnetic capture mechanism uh, on the servicer and it's going to basically grab the client and just do a whole bunch of, you know, capture and releases up there. And it sounds like they're going to tweak, you know, the parameters of each, you know, docking event, um, including somewhere they're going to have the client uh, set it tumbling and then try mm-hmm. to, you know, be able to, you know, maneuver, because this is all these, you know, these close proximity operations are can be tricky, you know what I mean, especially with a a, a, a passive tumbling, you know, client. But of course, you know, this is debris we're talking about, right? You want to be able to grab it under, you know, non-ideal circumstances, especially when, you know, a lot of these, uh, there's, there's a, certainly a lot of um, debris that's up there that's from, you know, broken up spacecraft that, you know, basically exploded after they, you know, were, you know, rendered inoperable. It'll be really cool to see this uh, LCD uh, do its thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that they have selected a magnetic uh, docking mechanism uh, rather than a a mechanical because I mean, we generally don't put magnetic things up in space, right? I mean, like we put a lot mm-hmm. of aluminum, uh, not a lot of steel or iron. So I would be interested to find out how many things you can actually grab with a magnet. Although if it becomes standard practice to put, you know, just a steel plate uh, in an easily grabbable corner of your uh, uh of your satellite that that's a fantastic way to do it
2: and maybe the demo is more interested in the rendezvous and proximity operations right more than it is in the actual mechanism itself for the capture you know may- maybe maybe uh elsa d2 yeah might have little grips or you know some yeah. kind of mechanism that's coming out and grabbing
1: uh, honestly i mean the the grapple it, i mean it's important but the actually doing the rendezvous operation in the, and the proximity stuff is really tough. Like that, that may be what we need more practice at, to be honest.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, that certainly represents all of the, or most of the energy requirements of, you know, getting to that satellite. And so, But I guess that's not really an issue when I'm assuming that these are all just for one-time use, right? They just go up there and they deal with one one satellite. Because I think that there was some other service that we had mentioned that was talking about going to multiple satellites. It might have been Tethers Unlimited. Like maybe they attach the little tether, Mm -hmm. deploy that, and then they... Go off to some other satellite, which I, I assume would all have to be in in more or less the same orbit um, or at least the same orbital plane, but uh, this is probably just for one time use only
2: right and so, I mean certainly the the tech demonstrator is but yeah
0: pretty cool, so yeah, so I guess we can move on to the recent event, the recent what, what would you call it um I was gonna say rudd. And I guess that still applies, but I don't think of RUD's as yeah. being breakups in orbit.
1: Well, this was probably an explosion, so I think uh, Rudd is, is yeah. pretty good.
0: So this was a NOAA-17 weather satellite. And I think that we've mentioned these before, and we've definitely talked about what? satellites that have broken up because of exploding batteries, which is what happened in this case. I do know that we've talked about that. I don't remember which satellites specifically. Um, they might have been NOAA satellites, but basically there's a particular... And to be honest, this probably is not so much a flaw because that's kind of what I was thinking, but apparently this is just because they hadn't considered debris mitigation back in the day. And now it's become much more of an issue, so they have to make sure that they can you know, completely passivate these satellites.
1: So, David, I think what you might be remembering is actually NOAA-16, which uh, exploded I think 2015, 2016. So, I mean, it was, we were doing, uh, doing our thing back then. So I, I think we, mm-hmm. I think we talked about it, but yeah, no- Noah 16 was decommissioned after an anomaly ended its life and then it exploded, uh, like a year later. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um and noah 17 was decommissioned back in 2013 and you know made it all this time but it also exploded
0: (laughs) yeah and that same battery issue and we
1: think we think
0: i think that they're pretty sure about that
1: i mean there aren't that many things that that could explode but the batteries Mm -hmm. were disconnected they shouldn't have been an issue but Something, something was an issue.
0: Yeah. So this satellite had been passivated, or at least to you know the best of their ability, the batteries were disconnected, the fuel valves were open, and they had completely purged the fuel tanks, and they turned off the transmitters. Now I don't know what that has to do with anything. Um, like how, like how does that passivate? RF or is that just for interference. that's just for RF interference? Yeah.
1: It's kind of crazy that like they they we know that this bus has um has this flaw. That sometimes results in explosions, but like we disconnected the freaking battery, like it shouldn't have been undergoing charge cycle, so it must be thermal cycle related, right? Like, does that seem reasonable? Right.
0: I mean, I think so, and I want to say that that's what we had discussed all those years ago. Um, is that that's what it was? It was like something to do with just the heating, because you can't, you, like, you cannot depressurize a battery. You can turn it off, or you know, you can disconnect it, but um, mm-hmm. there's still. Gases or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's in them, but you know, there is something contained in there which can expand. So while the debris from this satellite is no immediate threat, um, one thing that was pointed out was that there are two other satellites in the same orbit, um, which actually have both batteries and propellant tanks that cannot be depressurized. I mean, that is Quicksat and the Terra satellite, which I think we recently mm. mentioned. I want to say,
2: I don't think they're in the same orbit, but they're just. Also in polar orbits.
0: Polar orbits, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. Although that's a pretty well-defined orbit, right? Because you can't be... I, I mean, I don't know how much wiggle room you have with the polar orbit. In order to keep it sun-synchronous, at least I should say, which I think that they are. Because if not, I don't know why they're in a polar orbit. Although there are other reasons, I suppose. It depends on what you want your local time to be, like as you pass over whatever you're observing, I guess, you know. but. Uh... And,
1: and while there are 24 hours in the day, most people are either interested in noon or... Or, right. you know, a specific oblique angle, I'm assuming like, you yeah. know, Dawn or Twilight or something like that. It's depending on what they're...
2: It, like comparing Noah 17 to Quickscant, there's only uh, a difference. Uh, it looks like less than a kilometer in their perigee altitude and just, you know, a uh, maybe 10 kilometers difference in their apogee. So very similar, like you said. Mm-hmm. Although the, yeah, the inclination's off by, you know, about a fifth of a degree difference in inclination. So, yeah, because, yeah, so they're both sun-synchronous.
0: Okay, let's do four short and sweet's today. And what's the first one, Dennis?
2: First up, Chang'e 5 Orbiter Begins Extended Mission. China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CASC, announced that the Chang'e 5 orbiter has successfully reached the Earth-Sun L1 Lagrange point earlier this week. As part of an extended mission, the spacecraft once involved in last year's lunar sample return will carry out a range of tests and solar observations. Lying between the Earth and the Sun, the L1 point is also the home to NASA's Discover mission and permits an unobstructed view of the fully illuminated Earth. Future possible destinations are also being considered, with a Venusian or asteroid visit considered less likely than traveling to the L4 or L5 points leading and trailing Earth perspective.
1: Next, uh, JWST on target for launch in October. The long-delayed James Webb Space Telescope is nearing the end of its long journey to the pad. The most recent progress includes adding sunshield patches to ensure that it can withstand air escaping from its folds during ascent, and retorquing fasteners that might not have been installed properly. With 48 days of margin remaining, the team is now tackling issues uncovered during testing that involve two communications transponders. The vehicle will be shipped to French Guiana on an unknown date, which is standard practice, to let. And protective anonymity to the $10 billion vehicle on its trip over the high seas.
0: Alright, and then next up, super heavy is being stacked. So Elon tweeted a photo of the first super heavy booster taking up most of a vertical hangar at Boca Chica. This Pathfinder vehicle is not intended to ever fly, but will instead help determine how it will be built and transported. The booster consists of 36 steel rings, identical to the ones used for construction of Starship. There are no landing legs being installed, but Raptor engines will eventually be integrated. The booster was constructed in two sections, with the locks portion being stacked and welded to the liquid methane section below. The booster alone measures 67 meters in height, making it just 3 meters shorter than a Falcon 9, that's even without a Starship on top. So uh, that is a very very big booster and I was confused actually at first mm. looking at it because I thought they were stacking the Starship on top because he said it was being stacked and it was you know super heavy but this is just a booster but yeah that's tall enough already so I don't know what they're going to put it in I don't know how much room they have um if they're ever going to integrate that in a hangar I they'll just, just have to build a bigger one because yeah right it's already huge
1: there's no room <laughs> yeah and finally Capella releases dish deployment video Back in January, we mentioned the Transporter 1 integration incident where a separation mechanism was accidentally released on the Sherpa FX dispenser, damaging two DoD payloads. Fortunately undamaged were Capella 3 and Capella 4. This week, footage shot by a camera on their booms was released, showing the satellite bus and deployable dish as they spun around in low Earth orbit the 3.5-meter mesh dish can be seen expanding to its full size like an umbrella. The two vehicles have been returning synthetic aperture radar images since January. Capella is planning an initial fleet size of 7, but has discussed flying over 30 vehicles based on demand. Okay, stand by We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, corrections, and elaborations. Um, I guess that's what this one qualifies as, right?
2: Yeah. I was going to say, this is almost like a, a short and sweet in the corrections or in the comments yeah. section. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was great. Emery shared in our, in our Discord um, a, a comment uh, uh, related to last week when we talked about mission extension vehicles. So rather, you know, in addition to the kind of different, you know, uh, the value that, you know, this adds, we were talking a lot of time to refresh your memory about how, you know, would you really want to send a spacecraft up with less propellant and then go and have your mission extension vehicle later on, you know, go and revive it? Like that would always seem to be, you know, the worst of the two options. And so you would want it always to be fully fueled, which is true. But uh, Emery does point out that there are some uh, other good things that you can do in addition to what we talked about, like uh, extending the capability, uh, for example, and also just the comfort of knowing that you can uh, extend the life of your vehicle. And so you have a little bit more flexibility there. And so uh, Emery writes... I would think that this allows a trade-off between propellant and more hardware to make money. If you have the amount of propellant, say 150 kilograms, and flew 150 kilograms more transponder hardware, you can make a lot more money and then use a service mission to extend satellite life. And so I think that's uh, that's just a great point and something that, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you share with us. Because, right, that's, we hadn't really quite talked about that, but you can imagine just, you know, yeah. exactly. Like, if, that, if you just add that many more transponders, you know what I mean? Then that's, you know. Uh, that much more service you can provide, that much more money you can rake in, and then that would, you know, pay for the uh, mission extension and then some. You know what I mean?
0: I think the thing to consider is that not all master orbit is considered equal or is equal, if you will. Mm. Like there's mm-hmm. some that's more valuable than others, and having, you know, extra transponder hardware, um, provided that you know that you're getting that service, then yeah, that would make financial sense. It's like you would have to be certain that you would be refueling the spacecraft because if not, then you're putting a lot of expensive hardware up there for, you know, an even shorter lifespan. So
1: what? I think is really like a new thought to me here that I that hadn't occurred to me is yeah fuel fuel is really heavy. Uh, Emery says that he picked one hundred and fifty kilograms because Tdrus tanks are three hundred kilograms. I mean that's that's a lot of mass. Like I I wasn't even thinking in terms of. Um, hundreds of kilograms, uh, worth of mass that's, that's available. Cause I, I was thinking, well, you know, you, you only care about reducing your fuel mass, you know, if you're already bumping up against the limit of your launch vehicle and most, you know, if you're flying something like this, uh, on its own or, you know, I guess maybe two of them at once. Um, it, it's pretty rare that the launch vehicle is not going to have access capacity. And so most of the time you're going to be paying for the entire launch vehicle and not for a prorated uh, amount based on, on your launch mass. I I, I... I believe I could be wrong about that, especially in the modern economy where we do so many multiple mission launches, but like, you know, you're going to have overhead. Why would you pick to to drop out hardware or to drop out fuel? But if we're talking on the order of 150 kilograms, like, yeah, that, that can totally put you over the limit of a launcher. Like that's uh, that's an appreciable amount of, of mass uh, that you could potentially be reallocating. So it's really good to have Professionals uh, chime in.
0: Plus, I think that the. I, I don't know what the density of hydrazine is, but I'm guessing that it's easier to fit 150 kilograms of hardware inside a payload fairing than, you know, 150 kilograms of hydrazine, because, like often, the limiting factor is the volume and not the mass to orbit, right? Mm-hmm. So you could probably yeah. fit more mass in there anyway. It's just that you didn't have enough room, right. but so why not right. put something that'll fit?
2: And I think hydrazine's about uh, the same density as water. And so usually our electronics
0: are... We'll we'll sink if you put them... (laughs) (laughs) They
2: they will sink, yes.
0: So, I guess with that, let's move on to this week in Space Flight Histories. At least this week now we have one winner Unlike last week. Although we did get a late entry uh, who was correct uh, about last week, so... Um, so I'm actually kind of happy about that. I, I guess they, uh, uh, did read the book Lift off. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. But, uh, yeah, this, this week's winner was Peter McMalley. And the clue was first sweep of a dusty surface that evokes images of Mars, but also the moon. It could easily be the moon equally dusty.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are yeah. a lot of dusty things up there. And this week in spaceflight history is the 24th of March, 2006. It was high rise taking its very first images of Mars. Um, so first, let's uh, let's praise high rise for a sec. Uh, high rise has a half meter aperture um, and it's huge. It's actually the largest telescope in deep space. And uh, in its current, uh, at its current altitude around Mars, um, looking at the Martian surface, it has a resolution of a third of a meter per pixel. Jeez. (laughs) So uh, Alan Delamere, um, who worked for, uh, worked, works, I'm assuming works for uh, Ball Aerospace, began planning the specifications for high rise in the late 80s, just kind of like, what are we going to need? What is this going to look like? Um, So, high rise, you know, everything uh, has so much more history than just the day that it was launched, right? high rise itself was proposed and accepted by NASA in 2001. Uh, the actual hardware was delivered in December of 2004, and it was launched on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter in August of 2005. Its first light image was not at Mars. We actually kind of went back and forth when we were looking at the clue, trying to figure out a clue talking about the first image. But of course, it actually took photos of uh, the moon and the jewel box cluster uh, during the cruise phase. And as soon as I saw the words moon and jewel box cluster together. I'm pretty sure that we have mentioned that on the show before. It's like specifically high rise, taking those photos.
2: We had a, a this week in space flight history that I think was about its launch. And I think okay. I, it was me. Cause I, I remember doing a really deep dive into high rise okay. uh, okay. last year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So th- this is, this is the first photos of Mars, which is, um, very exciting. So when, uh, MRO arrived at Mars, it went into this high orbit. It didn't, um, aero capture. It, it did use its engines to, uh, to enter this high orbit. Um, but then after that, it did actually aero break down into its science orbit. But this initial orbit, uh, was 27,000 miles at its, uh, an twenty seven thousand miles i mean it it's very high for a telescope m r o spent five orbits uh in this high altitude orbit so uh thirty five and a half hour period uh so m- over five days, uh, just sitting there doing uh, checkout activities before it started diving into the atmosphere it seems pretty reasonable to me. High Rise and the and the other cameras on board actually had two opportunities um, to take photos of the Martian surface before aerobraking. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure why they only had two opportunities given uh, five orbits. It, it must have been sort of a scheduling thing where they carved out two opportunities to be dedicated to to camera operations. You know, you have to do pointing and all this. So, And what I saw was that they selected the first opportunity based on lighting conditions and ground speed. So while the Apoarian was 27,000 miles, uh, they actually took photos at 1,500 miles-ish. It was a little over 1,500. I, I don't know what the second opportunity looked like, although... I guess it wouldn't be that hard to figure out because high-rise did actually return photos from that second opportunity. And the second opportunity was quoted as the next day. Um, I, I could go look up the actual capture time, I suppose. Um, but I, I'm assuming that because the orbital period is 35 and a half hours, it was likely in a different portion of the orbit. I don't, I don't know how they selected these, these two windows, but they, you know, took photos of both of them and taking photos wasn't the only thing that they did in this area. They actually spent 40 minutes, uh, collecting engineering data, um, and then sending it home. And I don't know if that, uh, engineering data collection period took place, uh, on both of these orbits. So not only did HiRISE take photos, but Context Camera and Mars Color Imager also took photos. Altogether, the, the photos that all three cameras took made up 25 gigabits, not gigabytes, gigabits of data that got sent home. And uh, I found an article from NASA that I really love. It, it wanted to give us some context. How much is 25 gigabits? Uh, and very helpfully, it is enough to nearly fill uh five cd-roms boy that's a 2006 uh (laughs) comparison in it It, it's so crazy to me that cd-roms are now outdated but in any event, so they had these two opportunities to to take photos and high rise's life uh started with a bunch of very close calls uh in terms of scheduling. So they had two two chances to take photos and they got it in. Okay, great. After that, they took six months to get down to their science orbit, the the aerobraking maneuver. Uh it, it took 445 passes to break, and then I think they spent a, another 100 orbits um, finalizing their circular orbit. I'm not 100% sure because I saw the number 445 reported by NASA, um, and then somebody else said something like 515, something like that as a alternative number. And only, only one can be right. So I'm assuming that 445 orbits actually dipped into the atmosphere. And then there was some other activity that was happening, but in any event, it was six months of having those cameras turned off. Um, they achieved their final orbit uh, at the end of September and high rise reactivated almost immediately. They, they got it up and running. um And it took its first image of Victoria crater October 6th. And here's where the other close call happens. Solar conjunction began on October 7th. (laughs) So, you know, you got two opportunities to take your first, uh, your first images of Mars and kind of go, okay, the the instrument still works. Uh, and then you have one opportunity. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know how many opportunities they actually had, but I can't imagine it was many, uh, given that they took it you know, a day before, uh, they, they lost, uh, communication with the vehicle, but, you know, they, they had this very short window to take a photo of Victoria crater. And so you can just imagine, um, all the mission planning folks, uh biting their nails really hoping that they're going to be able to get <laughs> at least one photo now and not have to wait another another month uh to that'd be pretty stressed yeah yeah but that i i wanted to do a short uh this week in space Flight history today cuz we had such a long show but that's this week in space Flight
0: history that might be the shortest one ever
1: yeah trust me we i could go on because Dennis and i last week spent a bunch of time going over the high rise uh raw data and oh. and learning about it and picking out all the all the first photos from each of the different CCDs and kind of piecing piecing the data together and figuring out exactly what was what and which was the first photo. I was thinking about doing a photo clue, but it just mm-hmm. it, it seemed better. That would to, be a
0: tough one, yeah. I
2: yeah,
1: I think I think it might be really easy to do um just given, you know, 10 eye. But I guess, you know, you can Google words just as easily as you can Google a, a photo.
0: So that was a nice, very cool, very short This Week in Space Flight History. Uh, Dennis, what is the clue for next week?
2: So next week, which is the 30th of March through the 5th of April, in 1983, the clue is a little deeper pool.
0: A little deeper pool.
2: That's a That's a very
1: poetic clue.
0: It does have a certain poetry to it, and I imagine there, there's a historical event attached as well. But I don't know what that is. But if someone <laughs> out there knows, then give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So now let's do upcoming spaceflight events. Just three of those, uh, and I think Dennis, you got the first one since it's destroying your life.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, things will be mitigated. Actually, yeah, this is uh, this is constellation week. Um, so right, uh, first up on March 24th, uh, we have a Falcon 9 taking Starlink 22. And so this is the uh, 23rd batch of 60 satellites. We uh, all kind of know the routine. Um, it'll be flying at uh, 0858 UTC or 4:58 uh, a.m. Eastern um, from Slick 40 at the.
0: Have you had many problems with these satellites? Oh, I mean
2: that, now, now I just teach and manage the department, so I don't really, I don't do research uh, imaging anymore. But for you know, it's 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 become more of a nuisance. But it's really the the full con- It's more like right now it's a nuisance, but planes and other satellites have always been a nuisance for us. But it's more like when you have the full satellite or sorry, the full constellation. And in particular, when the Vera Rubin telescope starts the LSST survey, then that's going to be a problem because that is a supposed to be something that's going to totally probably still will absolutely revolutionize astronomy in terms of just the sheer amount of data is going to be ridiculous. Like it's, it's hard to, it's, it's, huh. it's like a Hubble space telescope, you know, being able to see correctly kind of level of a uh, uh, big step function in terms of progress in astronomy. And that is going to get hammered by these constellations <laughs> if they don't mm-hmm. basically do some serious mitigation big time. Because so, uh, and remember one web in a sense sucks more than Starlink because it's going to be a higher altitude. And so it's going to stay uh, visible for longer hours into the evening so even yeah, br- at-
1: brighter for longer and slower moving mm-hmm.
2: and slower moving bit yeah and so it's 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 very unfortunate but anyway
0: all right well then next up after that on the 24th at the SN11 prototype 10-kilometer hop. so And I understand that they'll be doing a static fire on Monday, which is the day after we record, but the day before you receive this podcast. So I guess, I guess we hope that that went well so that this 10-kilometer flight will occur. That 10-kilometer hop will begin at 1,200 hours through 2000 hours UTC. So a nice eight-hour window to get it off the ground.
1: And then after that, we have a Soyuz 21B with a Frigate M upper stage flying 1Web 5. So this is 35 1Web uh, satellites. That's planned to launch on Thursday, March 25th at 02:47 uh, hours UTC. Um, and that's flying out of Ostokny, which I don't think we've seen too many of those recently. But yeah, there you go. Those are your
2: upcoming spaceflight events.
0: So that's it, and let's deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support
1: the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as up and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. You can check our Twitter or Reddit for links or orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody.
2: See you.